Good morning to all of you here. Those of you who are watching online as well, uh, welcome to our service. Um, so we, uh, uh, for the next four weeks, we're going to be exploring, as you got the PG-13 uh, warning, hopefully, we're going to be exploring Christian sexuality. We're going to be talking about Jesus and sex and gender and questions and uh, the subject, the whole subject of sexuality. And so I want to encourage you to open your Bibles right now to Luke chapter 7. Uh, we, we believe that understanding the Bible doesn't have to be a mystery. We're going to be opening our Bibles. We're going to be seeing what the Bible says. And uh, we're going to take a dive into a portion of that chapter today. Uh, so uh, we're going to pray as we do every week, prayer of illumination, uh, asking the Holy Spirit to speak to us through his word and uh, to empower us to live his word. And this prayer is based on Jeremiah 29, so please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are the creator and sustainer of all things. You have a plan and you hold the future. By your Holy Spirit, illuminate your truth as we look to your word. Give us a deeper understanding of who you are and the hope that we have in you. Give us faith to trust your heart and the work of your hands. Lead us to walk in your ways and guide us to follow wherever you lead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we, as we deal with a subject like this uh, over the next few weeks, uh, we begin with really a whole boatload of problems <laughs> uh, trying to address this, chief of which is how the church and Christians, how we, uh, lack a lot of credibility. Uh, we lack credibility on this subject uh, for a lot of reasons and to a lot of people. And so uh, I just want to start by putting out there some of the reasons that, that this creates a problem or some of the reasons why we lack credibility on this subject. Uh, one uh, has to do with our own oftentimes bigotry for, uh, in many of us, uh, bigotry that comes through in our public pronouncements, sometimes it comes through in our private conversations. When it comes to this, this subject, I have shared this story before, and I don't think it was that long ago, uh, about being home from college. It was the late 1970s, Florida, South Florida, and I went to the hospital to visit a boyhood friend of mine uh, who was in the hospital because his boyfriend had beat him up so badly that it wound up in the emergency room and eventually wound up uh, with a long stay in the hospital. And while I'm in there talking to him, there's a talk show going on in the, back, in the background. It was a local talk show, and they're having a bit of a debate. And the whole thing had to do with a uh, movement in the late 70s in South Florida, and Florida in particular, uh, with regard to gay rights and housing. And, uh, and there was somebody representing an organization that was anti-gay rights, uh, specifically in the housing situation, and someone that was pro. Uh, for it. And the anti-gay rights person uh, identified as a Christian, and the people behind that movement identified as Christians. And uh, I have no reason to believe that they weren't Christians. And so they were talking, and all of a sudden the anti-gay rights person starts calling uh, the other side, people on the other side, he starts calling them crazies. And he begins to refer to them not by what they believe, or not by what they're arguing for, or not by name. He starts identifying them as the crazies do this and the crazies do that. 
And I was not only just embarrassed because we had turned to listen to the debate, I not only was embarrassed, but I also realized that uh, my efforts, my many long years of efforts in introducing my friend to a loving God, a God who loves him and, um, and wants to have a relationship with him, took a significant step backwards on that day, along a similar vein. Preston, Preston uh, Sprinkle, the president of the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, tells a story about a friend of his named Jordan uh, who uh, had talked to his pastor about his own uh, attractions to other men. And uh, it was time he felt to share it with a larger group of people. So he served on the youth ministry team, leadership team, and on a night for youth ministry, when they would meet ahead of time, he met with them. While he's sitting with them, he finally broached the subject, and he finally shared his struggle and where he was. And uh, they began, as he describes it, talking in front of him about whether or not, with him in their presence, they started talking about whether or not he really was a believer or not because of his struggle. They asked him, Someone asked him when he had decided to be gay. And, and he's thinking, I, I don't want to be gay. I don't remember ever deciding uh, to, uh, to be attracted to, to people of my, uh, of my sex. Someone explained that his lifestyle really couldn't be condoned. And he thought to himself, lifestyle, I've never even touched another person sexually in my entire life, whether male or female. But before he had a chance to address that, someone else said, we really can't have you working with our youth. And, and he just said, hey, I'm not a pedophile. And so reflecting on that conversation later, he said it was like he could feel his humanity slipping away as his brothers and sisters in Christ made one accusation after another. Another problem that we have that, that impacts our credibility is um, a problem of what we might call scripture twisting or you know, poor theology or oftentimes skewed advice, you know, taking the Bible, something that the Bible says, and then kind of spinning advice from there that um, on the issues of, of sex and sexual integrity and on dating and marriage, um, but it's not necessarily good advice and certainly not something that should be put on other people. So Joshua Harris uh, epitomizes this. Uh, Harris is probably, if you haven't heard of him, he's probably one of the biggest deconversion stories uh, that has come out in social media in the last couple of years. At the age of 17, he wrote a best-selling book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And um, that also became a movement within itself, and it became part of an ongoing um, Christian purity movement. And in his 20s, uh, he was well-spoken enough and a good enough thinker and communicator that he was actually made the lead pastor in a very influential megachurch, even though he had not gotten any formal theological training. And as he tells his deconversion story, he says one of the major catalysts to him walking away from Christian faith was that he started to read uh, and hear critiques 
from people, not critique so much, but hurt from people who had read his book and felt that it had in some way uh, derailed them or created a lot of damage in their relationships or the relationship with God, and they gave specific reasons for that. He wound up reading hundreds of these, and he wound up not disagreeing with them. He wound up seeing how some of the things he said uh, could be hurtful to so many people. Um, and so he was, he was only one contributor, but a, a significant contributor to the, to the Christian purity, sexual purity movement. And, you know, kind of looking back at that, a lot of people are looking at that and saying, yeah, one of the big problems with that movement, not that it was all bad or anything, and it probably helped a lot of people, but one of the problems was it made a lot of false promises to people. And it's in those false promises when they were discovered not to be really biblical type of promises that created a lot of people, leaving them very disappointed, sometimes very broken. And one example was the, the promise that was continually made within that movement, probably not by everybody in that movement, but many people in that movement, that if you will just wait to have sex until you get married, it is going to be glorious. Now, it left a lot of people out of the discussion. Um, a lot of people in churches, a lot of youth who were exposed to that. Uh, some of them would never marry. And it really didn't talk about that. Didn't talk about uh, a Christian's call and sexuality with regard to, um, or at least it didn't focus enough on it, uh, whether they marry or not. It didn't, it was a false promise to people who were gay or lesbian and were going to live their lives by a Christian ethic. They were not going to have glorious sex in their life. Uh, it was hurtful to a lot of people who already hadn't waited. And it was something that stuck in a lot of people's minds if they later didn't wait. Um, and certainly uh, a whole boatload of people in churches, Christians, uh, experienced a, a lot of disappointment when they had waited and then they got married, and sex wasn't glorious. It was a struggle. Uh, on top of all of that, we have our own sexual failures in our own lives. We as Christians, every single one of us, doesn't live really well by the ethic that Jesus gives us, which not only speaks to our behavior, but also speaks to what's going on in our minds and in our own hearts. We don't live up to God's standards consistently. And so when we talk about a subject like this, we, we squirm our way through it, or we live in denial, we focus you know, on other things. Sometimes we rail against the culture and we blame the culture, sometimes even blame the culture for whatever our own personal struggles or the struggles in the church are. Even when we're aware of this and we're humbled by it, uh, sometimes we go too far and we start elevating sexual sin to a level that it really doesn't belong. And um, I was listening to a podcast not too long ago, and the person who was talking was talking about this very subject and said, said this, and, and you can judge whether this is accurate or not. She said, if you were to stop your average uh, college-age uh, campus ministry uh, attending guy 
and say, how's your relationship with God? She said, how often do you think the calculation that goes through their head is um, how well they're doing with God is directly correlated to whether they looked at pornography in the last week or not? And so she said, um, she said here's, here's the problem with that. God wants to work on a lot of things in our lives. And it, it, would, be, it would be a good new chapter in the Screwtape letters uh, for Uncle Screwtape to be writing the junior demon saying, just keep them focused on this one sin because then they won't really deal with their angry and hurtful words. They won't deal with their pride. Uh, they won't deal with their lack of prayer, of praying. They don't even connect with God in prayer. They, they won't deal with their sexism and they won't deal with their racism that's in their hearts. They won't deal with those kinds of things. Just keep them focused on this so that they feel if they don't do this one thing, they're good. You know, they're good with God and they're, they're, they're walking close to God. So, um, we could go for quite a while uh, also on the uh, sexual abuse uh, scandals that have, uh, that have been happening lately. And uh, I hate to even use the word scandals. The sexual abuse that has happened that has hurt so many people and turned so many people away from Christ. Uh, and, and then the cover-ups in order to protect the institutions, the denominations, uh, that go along with that. I mean, that's been happening just recently in a, in a big way within the Southern Baptist Church. But Southern Baptist Church is not alone in this. The Catholic Church isn't alone in this. This is a human thing. This is a church-wide thing. So given these and other realities, all these failures, what we say about sexuality is oftentimes dismissed. It's like we're, we're not going to get a hearing. And that's true not only outside the church. That's true within the church. And so we have trouble connecting. Uh, those of you who are students, maybe in middle school, high school, college, you're right in the crosshairs of all of this. And in the discussions and the pressures are different for you and you look at this in many ways differently because you have a whole different background going into this. And you're hearing about the failures all the time. And you don't have to be a student to experience that. A lot of adults are hearing about this all the time. That's what we're up against in a series like this. It's, it's significant. It's a significant uh, hurdle. So the result is that lots of suffering and struggling people live and struggle in isolation. Another result is a lot of people just ditch Christianity altogether. Um, and then droves of people are missing out on God's perspective for our lives and on his grace for our life and his instructions. For our life. So what if we could find a way to think about this, um, to learn about sexuality, to talk about sexuality from a biblical perspective in spite of our personal failures or the failures of the church at large? What if we could do that? Because we have to. And I think we can do that. I think uh, Jesus shows us how we can do that. Jesus actually offers a way to talk about and, and learn about and live out our sexuality in a way that is steeped in humility and love and grace without lacking in confidence, conviction, and truth. He provides a way to do that. 
And so our posture as we come into this, our, our posture as we talk about these subjects with our kids, with our students, uh, with our friends, our neighbors, our work associates, our posture and our approach to talking about this is extremely important. And that's what we're going to focus on today. We will get to the convictions. We will get to the truths that the Bible teaches us that, that, are some, that are many times very inconvenient for ourselves and very inconvenient for um, uh, for our culture in a lot of ways. We will get to that, but we're going to really focus today on our posture and approach to this. So over four weekends, we're going to be looking at Jesus' way. And shortly after the new year, we're going to spend four more weeks on this same subject, four or five weeks on this same subject. Uh, we're not just doing this in our services. We're launching this Wednesday uh, a curriculum with our students, those of you who are parents are probably well informed about this because we've had meetings about it and we've uh, given information about how to tap into the resources and there's videos and there's all kinds of really, really helpful resources. So we're kind of going together through this as a church. So here's what we're going to be exploring over these four weeks, um, really foundational stuff. Grace and truth is today. Uh, the authority of God and scripture, shame and forgiveness, and then sex and marriage. Uh, after the new year, we'll get into some of, the, some of the trickier types of subjects around gender and various things uh, like that and various forms of sexuality. So we'll get into those. Jesus offers a way to learn about this and talk about sexuality and live out our sexuality that is steeped in humility, love, and grace while holding firmly to the convictions that he gives us to live by. So if I were to summarize and just say one thing that I want you to remember from today's message, besides the scripture, kind of just a message from this scripture, um, it's at the core and foundation, I think, of Jesus' teaching and as it applies to this. This is the, the basic big idea. Hold to biblical convictions without moving beyond grace. Hold to biblical convictions without moving beyond grace. We'll, we'll talk about what that, what that means here. But we need to hold to those convictions. We need to hold firmly to the truth that God gives us in his word. We need to know what the truth is that he gives us in his word. But we need to do that with, with grace. And we need to do that with love. Uh, we never outgrow grace spiritually. We never reach some kind of spiritual mountaintop or some part in the journey where we move beyond grace. We need grace every day of our lives until the day that we die. We need God's grace. We never move beyond it. We never outgrow it. Hold the biblical convictions without moving beyond grace. Now, this is a lot harder than it sounds. And the reason it's a lot harder than it sounds is uh, because at some point, we have to say what we believe. We have to say what our convictions are. And uh, some people are not going to hear that well and uh, may not hear grace in it, even no matter how we say it. It's very, very difficult. A lot of people don't want to talk about it at all. Uh, a lot of people would like to sit on the fence in one way or another, but the reality is if you're sitting on the fence, your feet are firmly planted on one side or the other. That's, that's the reality. There is no fence uh, in this. And the other thing is that if you're a parent, uh, if you're a church leader, if you're a small group, any, any church leader where you, you have to, you have to take positions and you have to, and we'll talk about why as we go through this series, you have to take positions. You have to explain that position uh, many times. 
and and uh, and so there there is it's not easy because of how people hear because of everything that I've just been saying it's not easy to be able to to explain it in that way but especially it's not easy because of what's going on in our own hearts we're our own worst enemy on this because we have a tendency to move beyond grace in our lives so we're going to focus on one story from the life of Jesus that shows how important it is to hold to convictions without moving beyond grace. Jesus explains how we approach sexuality and gr- with grace and truth, even though he doesn't talk about it per se in chapter 7. He shows us how we do that. So in the passage that we're going to be looking at in, in Luke chapter 7, Jesus has been invited to supper at the home of a prominent religious leader, a Pharisee. And while they're eating, a woman comes in, and she stands behind Jesus. She comes in, she's uninvited, she comes into the room, and she stands behind Jesus and eventually kneels down at Jesus' feet. So to get the picture in your mind, think of, think of a table that's low, and think of someone sitting kind of like this with their feet behind them, because that's how they ate Um, back then they didn't have tables and chairs and that sort of thing uh, at the dinner table so uh, think in those kinds of terms she has come in she is standing over Jesus feet she is eventually kneeling over Jesus feet and she begins to act in ways that in in that culture would have been considered completely inappropriate she creates a big scene Then Jesus shocks everyone in the room by accepting what she has done and even commending what she has done. He commends her behavior. And what Jesus says to her and to his dinner hosts gets to the core of what it means to live our lives not moving beyond grace. And it gets to the core of how we deal with sexuality with grace and truth. So let's begin in verse 36 of Luke Chapter 7, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. There's the the reclining. A woman in in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And we're going to stop right there for a moment. So this woman has come in. She's not invited. Uh, to get a sense of the picture here, uh, there would have been people. I mean, this is, this is the way it's done in that culture. It's done that way today, uh, especially in more rural-type cultures or Bedouin-type cultures. You would have seen it back then. Uh, the, the way that it worked is the Pharisee would invite someone over for dinner or some friends over for dinner, and people would watch. It was like, there's not TV, but you can go over and see this prominent Pharisee have dinner. And he would have welcomed it. Uh, Because it's not just watching, you're going to listen to the conversation. And that's why he would have welcomed it. Uh, Because the Pharisees were very, very evangelistic. They were wanting people to see what it looks like to live a holy life. And they would have been wanting to demonstrate that. And so there would be people that are looking in. The doors are not closed in that culture because if you close your door, people go, what are you trying to hide? And so the doors are open. Some people are out there. Most people understand 
It's his dinner. <laughs> you, you, you leave him alone. But this woman, she crossed a boundary. And she comes in, uninvited. And she begins to, to cry over Jesus' feet. And, um, and so she's weeping. And then she's wiping his feet, as it says in the rest of verse 38. Then she wiped his feet with her hair, kissed his feet, and poured perfume on them. Now, I think you can imagine that in that society, in that time, a woman just letting her hair down in public uh, like this, touching a man's feet in public would be considered to be totally inappropriate, and for many there, it would have been sexually provocative. It's just something that didn't happen out in public. So let's pick up in verse 39. <clears throat> when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. So he's like, why hasn't he rebuked her? And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts, the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? A simple story, right? Simple question. Which is going to love him more? Two debtors, 550. Um, which one is going to love him more? And I notice he didn't say which one is going to be more grateful because it's not the point he's getting at. He doesn't say which one is going to have a sense, a greater sense of obligation towards this person. That's not what he's getting at. He said, who do you suppose loved him more? Well, uh, Jesus uh, made a lot out of love when he was asked by a teacher of the law, what is the greatest commandment? And which, by the way, was a question that everybody asked back then. All the, all the teachers of the law asked that question. They all had answers for it. And they went to places in the Old Testament, and they would pick out some passages, and they would say, <clears throat> this must be the greatest commandment right here. This, this is, encompasses all the other commandments. And, um, excuse me a second. <coughs> and so, thanks. Um, uh, Jesus was asked that question, and he gave his answer for it. And he goes to the Shema from Deuteronomy, and he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And he adds the word mind, and with all your mind. And then he goes to Leviticus, and he says, And love your neighbor as yourself. That is the greatest commandment. He combines those two. So that means... Um, that's what Jesus is talking about here when he gets to the subject of love. So Jesus is saying that living out the great commandment to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is directly proportionate to how much you've been forgiven. He says, if you are forgiven a lot, you're going to love a lot, which means what? You're going to be living out the greatest commandment <laughs> in a big way. If you've been forgiven a little, you're going to love a little, or you're going to love less, all right? So <clears throat> I, I just want to make sure we get what's happening here. He's known for saying, what is the greatest commandment? He now says 
when you've been forgiven a lot, you're going to live out that commandment. And by the way, that commandment is not just about doing. That commandment is about loving God, right, at the core of it. And, and so, you know, any, any definition of spirit... Any definition of spiritual growth that doesn't have at its core at some point the idea of growing in deeper and deeper love for God and living out that love with others, with our neighbor. Thank you very much. I just, I don't know why I don't think ahead. All right, I got some water. Thank you, Jennifer. Anyways, um, so any definition that doesn't have love at its core is kind of missing something, right? Because Jesus said that is at the core. And it's not something that you do. It's something that you are. It's something that you, that you have. You have love for God. So uh, let's continue with the story. Let's pick up on verse 43. Simon replied, I suppose the one with the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and he said to Simon. So you got to get the picture here. He looks to the woman who's behind him, but he's talking to Simon. Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. And you did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, now they're talking out loud, (laughs) who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now here's the question that should come out of this. There's no doubt. This is, this is the question that anybody reading this throughout the last 2,000 years needs to ask the question. With whom do I most identify with in this passage? Do I identify with the woman or the Pharisee? Do I identify with the 500 debt or the 50 debt that's been forgiven? With whom do I identify in this passage? If you identify mostly with a woman and you've come to Christ for forgiveness and a relationship with God, you've received God's grace, there's really good news here. I mean, really good news, right? Because it's saying you, you, you get to start out in just this incredible way of loving God with your whole being and it's gonna pour out in your love for other people. You live in wonder that God would love you that much and forgive you. If you can't quite get yourself to say, well, I identify more with the Pharisees. You can't get yourself to say that, and it's really hard to say that because the Pharisees are the baddies, right? They're the bad guys in the story, the whole gospel story. Um, if it's read rather selectively, the reality is that if you read carefully enough, you discover that many Pharisees followed Jesus. And that many Pharisees accepted his teaching and took to heart what he said. So to be a Pharisee is not a completely bad thing. But it's still hard to say, yeah, I'm 
I'm more like the Pharisee. Now, if, if you need a little bit more help, just understand this about the, the Pharisees. The Pharisees were non-clergy, okay? They were not professional synagogue people, all right? They, were, they had jobs. And the Pharisees lived their life with the conviction that when the Old Testament said to the people of Israel, you are a kingdom of priests, they took that so seriously, they said, we should live our lives, our daily lives, when we go to work and wherever we do, in such a way that it reflects that we understand that we are priests. So they took as their lead the way that priests were called to live. Okay, they were not Levites um, from, the, you know, from, um, from the family of the Levites, they were not priests, but they wanted to live that way because they believed when God said, I am holy, therefore you must be holy. They took it seriously. Now, they gave Jesus a hard time. And as you read, again, carefully, you realize the reason they gave Jesus a hard time, one of the reasons they gave Jesus a hard time is because Jesus didn't seem to take the Bible as seriously as they did. And, and usually, we put that label, you don't take it as seriously as I do, when you don't interpret it in the way that I do. Because Jesus just said, Pharisees had all their traditions, and they had a way of doing it. They disagreed among themselves, but they had a core that they believed in, and they, they held to that. They had a lot of disagreements, but they had a way and an approach to Scripture that Jesus just didn't align with uh, oftentimes. So they gave him a hard time. Jesus pokes them all the time because he says, you guys aren't as good as you say you are. You, know, you, you think you're living these holy lives. but I." And then he would point out their hypocritical attitudes and hypocritical ways of living. And he would point it out all the time. And he was trying to get at their pride because at the, at the base of all sin is pride. All right. So I'm going to ask it again, maybe with a little bit more nuance there on who the Pharisees were, who do you most identify with in this passage? The woman? Great. All I'm going to say to those who identify more with the woman is uh, don't walk away from your great start. In other words, we've all known people who had some kind of addiction. It might be an addiction to alcohol or whatever, and they... Uh, are recovering in that, and what do they wind up doing? They wind up being really hard on other people who have the same problem. I mean, like, harder than anybody else, and sometimes more judgmental than anybody else. Uh, that's just a, a human thing. Don't let that happen, and don't let others shame you. That would be my other word to you. But what if you really don't identify with the woman? What if you read the story and say, you know, I'm just... I'm not that person that people would look at and say in town and places, there's that sinner. There's that person who has kind of a wild lifestyle or just, you know, a mm, lifestyle. Okay, you're not that person, so you can't identify her, with her. What if you grew up in a Christian home? You came to Christ at a young age. You've been basically trying most of your life to live a faithful life. Maybe you rebelled for a while, but all in all, nobody would describe you as that woman. The question is, are you destined to love little? Are you destined to love little? I want you to understand the dilemma and the tension here. I hope you see it. And I hope if you've read this and other passages like that, I hope it has upset you at some point. I hope it has upset you. 
Maybe you can identify, at some point in your life, you can identify with reading the prodigal son, reading it well, the story of the prodigal son, reading it well enough to see the second half of the story and to realize that the older brother has been faithful all along and the younger brother comes back and has spent his part of the inheritance just like wildly, all right? And he comes home and the father throws this lavish party and what is he spending to throw that party? He's spending the older son's inheritance, <laughs> And the, the way the whole story goes, it's like, you know, the old, how in the world, you, you have to ask, how in the world does the faithful son who is stuck there, how does he end up in the end of the story being the baddie? If that hasn't hit you at some point, if you don't identify with the woman, and that has not bothered you, you probably haven't read the parable well. It is meant to, you go, what? It's meant to do that. And it's not just, Jesus does this all the time. He tells a story in Matthew chapter 20 about a, a, a farmer who goes out and hires people for that day. And he hires some people in the morning, and then he hires some people at noon, and then he, right towards the end of the day, he hires another group of people. And then at the end of the day, he pays them. And he starts with the people he, pay, he hired last, and he pays them for their work. And then he goes to the people at noon and he pays them the same amount that he paid the people last. And then he goes to the people who've been working all day, working hard all day, and he pays them the same amount as the people who maybe worked a couple of hours. And the people who came at noon and started working in the morning, work all day, go, hey, were you paying us the same as these guys who hardly even worked? And the owner says, did I pay you well? Yeah. Then... Why do you begrudge me paying the other people the same that I pay you? It's my money. Wait, it's meant to get a little bit under our skin. It is meant to get a little bit under our skin. It should bother us. So one more question. Um, if you don't identify with the woman, does it bother you because this woman or the prodigal or the people hired later in the day get equal status and love from the Father, maybe even a lavishing love, and your faithfulness over the years is seemingly unappreciated by Jesus? Or does it bother you because it seems you are destined to love little? Now that's, that's a, <laughs> these are two different things. It can be both, by the way. I think it really can be both. Um, but I don't know if we always get to this point where we ask, am I then, because of my faithfulness, am I destined to love little? If there is even a little bit of concern in your heart that you are destined to love little, and you're looking at that going, I don't want to be destined to love little. If there's a little bit of concern, there's great hope for you to love deeply. Great, great hope in all of these stories. The hope is in the realization, in spite of the fact, that as you would say, I came to Christ at a very young age. I have, some of you would say, as far as I can remember, I've always been a Christian. I don't remember even making a decision to follow Christ. I just always, I mean, God and I have always been close. And I've sought to be faithful. I've made mistakes. I've sought to be faithful, but I've made mistakes, yes. I've, I've done things I shouldn't do, and every day I, I do things I, I don't do things that I should do. 
Um, if that's you, you realize that you're describing someone who has been given God the Holy Spirit as this incredible resource to convict us of sin and not only convict us of sin, empower us to keep God's law of love. We actually have God the Holy Spirit in a way that others don't to empower us to live wholeheartedly for God. But we still sin. It, 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 here's, here's the hope. If you have all those resources and you have continually, almost every day of your life, sinned by a commission or sinned by omission, in a very real sense, your sins outweigh. Let's, let's put up that next slide so I get it. In a very real sense, our sins as God's people far outweigh those of people who don't know God because of what we know and who we know and because we have resources for living rightly that people far from him don't even have. That Pharisee had resources that that woman didn't have. You say, well, she could have done... She, she's a woman. She couldn't even become a Pharisee. <laughs> um, so... I mean, that Pharisee had so many resources. When we acknowledge that we sin in spite of, that, that our guilt is even bigger, then we start realizing we've been forgiven much more than we ever imagined. It's good to come to that realization. We're still being forgiven much more than we could ever imagine. And when we are forgiven much, and we know we're forgiven much, we love much. So how can we address sexuality and grace and truth? As I said earlier, hold the biblical convictions without moving beyond grace. We have convictions. Grace isn't grace if there is no truth, no sin. Forgiveness is unnecessary. The cross is unnecessary if we're not responsible for our own behavior or if just basically anything goes as long as we don't hurt someone. It's, that's not... We have convictions. Jesus doesn't compromise truth or the truth. He doesn't in this story. But he offers grace. He is, as one person puts it, truthfully loving and lovingly truthful. All the time. One of my favorite definitions of grace is one that all of us should have in our toolbox, especially parents. Uh, but I think it's a good one for anybody. So if you want to explain grace to someone, this is one you should have in your toolkit that you can pull out and share. So I'm going to share this. A lot of you have heard this before. Uh, but remember, don't just hear it. Put it in your toolkit. Use it. First chance you have. So in this st story, a little boy can be a little girl, depends uh, how you want to tell it, starts to pick on his little brother, and, or little sister anyway. We'll say little sister. And uh, in a pretty grievous, grievous way. So the, the, the dad in this case tells the little boy, go to your room and we're going to have a conversation about what you've been doing. And so he goes in and he talks to the boy and he gives the boy a framework for understanding how difficult it is for the sister. And you know, a lot of times we have these discussions and, you know, our kids go, you know, like, no, there's no empathy there. <laughs> uh, but this kid gets it. 
All of a sudden, he just kind of puts himself in the shoes of his sister, and all of a sudden, it's, it's hurting him. And he feels bad, and he looks at his dad, and he says, Dad, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I did that. And the sad dad says, well, son, you deserve a long time out for this. But you've admitted that what you did was wrong. I think you also need to admit it to your sister. And when we're done, let's go out for ice cream. All right, so in that story, when the dad says, you deserve a long time out, but he doesn't give it to him, that's mercy. When he takes him out for ice cream, that's grace. That's grace. Mercy is getting what you deserve. Grace is getting something good when you deserve something bad. All right? That's a story to have in your toolkit and, and use. But as with any analogy, it eventually falls apart. In this story, you have a flawed dad dealing with flawed child, a flawed child right? So, uh, you, I mean, we should, as parents, we should be very merciful towards our kids. I'm not saying don't, no consequences, but what I'm saying is it's how quickly we forget that we were doing exactly what those kids are doing that's driving us crazy right now. Um, we have really selective amnesia. Uh, so we can be merciful just because we're, we're broken people too, and we can offer grace because we're broken people too. It's not that easy for God because God is perfect and holy and perfectly just. And when he sees wrong things being done that hurt a lot of people and, and, and you know, ripple out and hurt a lot more people, to just ignore it, to just say, hey, let's go out for ice cream. You know in the deep, we all know deep in our hearts that that is just not an appropriate response to human evil. And so, uh, you have to add something to it. So if we put this up, mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting something good when what you deserve is something bad because God has taken on himself what we deserved. That's why God can do it. God is a just God, and his justice comes down on himself. God the Son on the cross. As we approach sexuality in this series, as we talk about it in our homes, use the resources, parents. Use the resources that we're giving you. As you talk about it with your friends, let's approach, let's approach it, uh, let's not approach it like a, as we've said in recent sermons recently, let's not approach it like a club of good people who are telling other people what to do, which is oftentimes what, how we do it. Let's approach sexuality as a league of sinners humbled by our own sin, without setting aside convictions shaped by God and his word, and standing firmly in God's mercy and grace. And what if we approach it in this way? Not only here and throughout this series, but in our conversations with our friends, and most importantly, what if we approached it this way in our hearts? What if it began to shape how we feel and how we think? If we did, maybe our witness to what God lovingly tells us about sexuality wouldn't be so easily dismissed. It'll still be dismissed by many. But maybe it wouldn't be so easily dismissed. Less people would suffer and struggle in isolation over sexual brokenness. Less people would ditch Christianity um, out of the, the just pride and hypocrisy that they see. 
and many more would hear about God's perspective for our lives and experience more deeply His grace for living. Let's approach any talk of sexuality um, as a league of sinners humbled by our own sin without setting aside convictions shaped by God and His Word and standing firmly in His mercy and grace. Let's begin our response to God's Word with celebration of the Lord's Supper, which reminds us of this story and the, or the um, application of the story about the child and the ice cream and the forgiveness. Because Jesus, in that Passover meal, his last supper, took the bread and he said, this is my body that has been broken for you, meaning broken in your place. Jesus has taken on himself what we deserved for the evil that we've perpetrated in our, through our lives. Let's eat together. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood which has been shed for you for the remission of sins. Father, we thank you that you are a God of grace. I pray for anyone here today who has walked away from you because they've seen or experienced um, hypocrisy, uh, spiritual pride. They've been abused, maybe. I pray that they will look to you and receive from you your love and your grace. I pray, Father, as we go through this series and as our students go through it as well, I pray that you will... um, speak your word into all of our hearts and uh, we just thank you we thank you for the grace that we have received we pray this in jesus name amen